I'm Katie Polson, and I put soap in a box as a Tide Pod packing engineer for Procter & Gamble. Hi, my name is Kevin and I have a podcast. On this episode of Why Do You Do That? My guest is Katie Polson. She's one of the hardest working people I know, and she is great at sharing what she loves with others. We've been friends for around six years now, and I knew she'd have some very unique experiences to talk about. It was great catching up with Katie, and I hope you enjoy listening along. Hello and welcome to Why Do You Do That? My name is Kevin, and just as a reminder, I have a podcast, This Is It. On this episode, our guest is Katie Polson. Katie, welcome. Thank you, Kevin. So excited to be here. So excited to have you. Uh, so we all we all know that you put soap in a box. Um, I think probably the preferred term that you would often use would be laundry sauce. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, the the soap in question here is laundry sauce, specifically laundry sauce that is packaged into individual pods for you to drop into your washing machine, mess free commonly known as Tide Pods and Gain Flings. Oh, gain, are Gain Flings the, what's the difference there? Yeah, so Tide Pods is actually the brand. So if you go and you buy laundry product that is in pod form, the industry name for that is a laundry pack, P-A-C a lot of times, or P-A-C-K. Pod is actually the trademarked term for P-N-G. So a laundry pod is a Tide Pod. And therefore, gain, which is a different formula, it has different enzymes, it has different trademarked perfumes in it and special cleaning claims, um, those are gain flings. So then if you were to buy a competitor's product, they'd be called a, you know, a pack or something else denoting a small unit of laundry sauce. I did not know that. That is very useful. So, and you, do, so you do both of them, specifically you do the, the, the packaging for them or the putting them in the box? Yes. Yeah, so the way that you can think of it is the, the laundry sauce process starts way out in the tank farm, right? You've got a bunch of raw materials that come together in a, a special proprietary way to deliver the cleaning power and the, the freshness scent without degrading in the pod. Um, there's then the converter, which is what takes it from being laundry sauce into being laundry pods. And once that pod exists as a individual quantity that you would recognize and use. I deal with all of the manufacturing equipment that takes it, puts it in a bag or a tub, puts that bag or tub in a case, puts that case on a pallet and gets that pallet on a truck to go to one of our distribution centers, which eventually end up at Walmart or Target or Dollar General for our lovely consumers to eventually buy. So you're putting it not, you're not podifying it. You are putting the pods into some other container. Yes. Our converting engineers podify it. I am a packing engineer. We also have packaging engineers who actually design the bags and tubs and cases. But I deal with all of the equipment that touches the pods and their primary packages. How do you... How do you find like that type of equipment? Do you have to design the equipment from scratch and then go out and say, hey, can somebody go build this for us? Or are there are there off this 
like off the shelf solutions for making the packaging or I guess putting the things into the packaging? It's a mix. A lot of it is figuring out. So we, we talk about it at a transformation level. So if you are the transformation of taking the pod off of the converter and into its conveying device, we would come up with like, okay, what is our success criteria? What are the important parameters here of how I get the pods from point A to point B? And we would then go out and talk to a number of vendors about, you know, okay, here's here's the volume of pods that we need to move. Here's what our throughput needs to be. What solutions do you guys have? And then we work on figuring out, you know, what is our best our best value that we can get for those different solutions. Um, a lot of times that's what the process looks like. Um, sometimes that things that are really upstream and proprietary and new to the world, we are doing the engineering ourselves of designing in a CAD software, computer-aided design, um, exactly what, what you know, metal needs to be cut and folded and building the actual machine itself. Um, but the majority of it is working with established vendors to a lot of times customize solutions that they already have to meet our specific needs. A lot of it focused around how quickly we can produce pods. It's one of our big advantages is that we can make pods a lot faster than a lot of our competitors. And the other big difference is that our, our design has chambers on top of the other. So we have a, a bottom chamber that has the majority of the liquid. And then those two little swoosh marks on top, that's one of the most proprietary things about the, the converting process is those swooshes being on top. It's really hard to put liquid on top of other liquid and keep them separate. Um, but then as far as putting it in the, the packages itself, a lot of it comes down to the, the rates at which we can do that, as well as the precision of making sure we have the right number of pods in there. With liquid detergent, it's all about weight and what mm -hmm. legally we're required to have at least the weight that we print on the package. We try to go above and beyond and make sure that if we say there's 42 pods, there's 42 pods in case someone counts. We don't want them to be dissatisfied that there's only 41, even though legally, if it makes weight, we're not in trouble. And I'm assuming that kind of varies based on the, the type of packaging. So I know I personally have purchased Tide Pods in like a giant kind of circular plastic tub and- mm -hmm. The aquarium the, tub. The, oh, that is a good name. They look like an aquarium. And then the, like, it looks, you know, just a, like a plastic bag, I guess. Mm -hmm kind of a, a smaller scale one. Are, are there any other options or that I'm missing there? No, those are our two forms in North America. Um, in, in Europe and Asia, there are different tubs. So in, in North America, all of our large counts, so anything above about 42 for our regular pods and 21 for our new power pods, um, all of those come in a tub. It's viewed as the, the premium packaging style to be in that, that plastic rigid container. Whereas our small counts are in the, the flexible film bags. In Europe, the bags are considered more premium. So it's the, you'll find large count bags and small count tubs that are almost really? more like a large butter container. They're like very short and they're like, so they're very short, maybe, you know, four or five inches tall mm -hmm. and then very long, um, almost kind of like a, like a butter container or a pencil case that then has you know, five to, to 20 pods in there, depending on the size. 
Do you know why why that is? Is that just kind of economies of scale or something and having to protect them or or what? Um, it's really about the the consumer's preference. So in America, we're all about buying bulk. We love to go to, you know, Costco and Sam's Club and get the, you know, 160 pound Tide Pod that's going to last you for a really long time. Um, in Europe, it's a lot of like going to the grocery store every day or every other day. And so I think that partnered with some of the, like Europe, I think is further along on the environmental sustainability journey than a lot of North American based companies are. And so some of it is, is there as well, as far as, you know, what can you recycle and how do you recycle it and things of that nature. But I'd have to talk, we have a consumer market knowledge department that their whole job is looking at what does the consumer like? What is their perception of these products and what, what feels premium? P&G is all about product superiority and being a premium superior product. So a lot of it plays into like, what is the consumer's perception? which is why different geographic regions that have different perceptions and have different, different setups for their packages. Which one is uh, more difficult to deal with in the, in the process? Is it, is it easier to load up the, the aquariums or is it easier to load up the, the bags? Um, it depends. I'd say they have different types of problems. So if you think about the, the tubs, when you need to do a quality check, it's not a destructive test. You you open the lid, you check for things, then you can send that out the door. With the bags, it's a destructive test. If you rip open the bag, you can't sell it. Oh, yeah. um, we actually have different like different programming for the machines as far as like what what piece of equipment is king and what controls the rate of the line depending on bags or tubs in order to strategically minimize not just pod scrap but also the packaging material scrap. So they're, they operate very, very differently. And when we think about technology experts within the company, your um, like equipment expert for the bag lines is a different person than your equipment expert for the tub lines because the, the way that you handle the package, the way that the pod gets there is the same for the two, but the way that you handle the packaging material and the way that they go in is similar, but different. Without, without getting into anything proprietary. Yeah. <laughs> so like roughly like the one in one, in one case, uh, you care a little bit more about being more delicate with the pod. And in the end, another, you're caring a little bit about being more delicate with the packaging. Is that kind of, or like one of them is, is the one that you have to care about more because it would be more wasteful if you were to mess something up along the process. Exactly. Yeah. It has to do with like, what is the cost of a tub? What is the cost of a bag? What does it mean if one of them gets a defect? Um, those kind of things of that nature. Cool. And so are you, are you, is your day-to-day -day kind of saying uh, we want to up this sort of like production rate or something? How do we make sure that we know what's happening? Or is it more of a, this is already existing just make sure we know what's happening. Is it kind of a planning, a maintenance? What is it? Yeah, so my job is a little bit more upstream than that. The way that we talk about it when we go to career fairs for our technical roles is we've got R&D, who's our most upstream group, engineering, which is the group that I'm in, which is kind of our middle of the road. 
And then manufacturing is our, our downstream group that actually sits at one of our manufacturing sites. So R&D's whole purpose is identifying an unmet consumer need and proving that we can meet it. So going out, talking to consumers about what they have now, what they would want in the future, figuring out are there enough people that want this, that it makes sense to try to develop a solution and then proving from a like laboratory or benchtop scale that it is possible for such a solution to exist. And so R&D will be really you know, focused on the, you know, the chemistry of it or how do we create equipment that takes liquid detergent and turns it into a pod. Um, that would be what R&D deals with. And then engineering is really about scaling it up. So once R&D has said, huzzah, I have a solution. How do I take it from my making 10 of them a day to I'm making 10 million of them a day? And so engineering is really focused on that, that scale up aspect. And so working very closely with R&D as far as what are the success criteria? What are the important parameters of the product that we have to make sure our transformations protect and maintain? And then as we start to find a vendor and work with them to either design new to the world equipment or adapt existing equipment for our specific needs. We then also interface with the manufacturing site who are gonna be the ones that run it on a daily basis. So they're the ones who are really focused on, we installed this equipment, but if we could make it run X percent faster or have Y percent fewer stops, or we see a consistent breakdown of this nature, how do we develop a solution for that on top of kind of the, the big engineering package? That's what manufacturing does. And so as you start to look at kind of bigger affecting, you know, multiple plants and multiple sites, that's when engineering starts to be more involved. So for instance, right now, um, we've made a commitment to the industry to make all of our tubs recyclable by 2023. So as we look to switch from PET to HDPE, high density polyethylene, we have to make sure that all of the touches that happen to those tubs don't crush them or dent them or scratch them. And so that's, that, that would be an engineering problem that I work on solving is how much force, how much pressure am I impact, enact, enacting on the tub and how much can the tub withstand? And how do I design a system that I know there's some variability in how hard that lever is going to hit or that, you know, exactly where the tub is going to be sitting? How do I design a robust solution for that versus something along the lines of we installed this and now that we've changed the tub design, it always tips over at this point. How do I put in some other widget to keep it from doing that? That's what the manufacturing group would do okay all right that makes a lot a lot more sense so thank you for that now that we know what you do uh, i guess it's time to get into the why do you do that portion of this we're going to go to school today i'm keeping with this theme of, of using classes to kind of organize what we're going to talk about and since you brought up kind of how you would talk about your job at a career fair i think it's probably good to start school off today with a little bit of a history class um, and maybe investigate uh, your own your own history and how you got into the current role that you have, uh, and even how you got into Procter and Gamble. Since I personally kind of know from previous experience uh, that you were with Procter and Gamble a little bit longer uh, than you were in your current position. Yes. Yeah, so my 
when I had my first interview with PNG's engineering department, they asked all the candidates to talk about their first interaction with Procter and Gamble, to which my response was, I was born and I was a Pampers test baby. So Pampers is one of our, our baby care brands that we have. Um, we're divided oh into God. different business units. Oh my yeah, just go ahead. learning that you were a diaper test baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So P&G would send my parents diapers. So they got free diapers in, in, in exchange for having to like take measurements about like what did the diaper weigh after I had worn <laughs> it for a certain period of time and having to fill out surveys about was there leaking? How much leaking? What activities had I done that potentially caused the leaking? Basically feeding data into our R&D department about the way to design better diapers. So PNG a lot of times does, we call them panels, where our employees are the first ones to test out our really kind of new to the world proprietary products because they can then give that feedback before we go and talk to a, a wider consumer base where the secrets make it out. So my parents both worked at PNG. They met at Procter and Gamble back in the the 80s. And so they worked in the the IT department. Um, they continued to work for Procter and Gamble until I was about two years old. But my mom said being an IT professional is too easy. Raising Katie, that would be a real challenge. So she ended up leaving the company to raise me and later my sister. My dad is actually still with PNG. And my sister will be interning for PNG this summer. So the Polsons are taking over. You heard it here first. And there's a, a strong family connection there to the company. Yes. Yeah, so, so that was my first experience with PNG was being being a Pampers test baby, going to take your kid to work day, growing up. Like the R&D department at one of them had like a glass blowing demonstration, which I thought was just like so absolutely cool. the coolest thing ever. I haven't figured out where we do that within the fabric care business, but I think that's uh that's maybe another business unit. But as I was, I guess to take it way back to like college planning when I was in high school, as far as what careers I wanted to do, I was initially really set on being a doctor because that was like, you're like, don't really think too critically. What do smart people who like science and want to make a bunch of money do. And that was, I was like, I'm pretty smart. I like science a lot and having a lot of money. That seems like a pretty, pretty cool, cool thing. So I'm going to be a doctor. And then as I thought about it more, I was like, all right. So I, I go to undergrad for four years. Cool. Cool. And then I pay to go to medical school. All right. That's fine. And then I go into residency and I wanted to be a, a pediatric neurosurgeon. I don't know how I arrived at that, but it was like, you just like go to residency for 11 years. Neurosurgery, it's not hard enough. You know, you got to make it smaller brains. So yes, pediatric. Smaller brains that are still developing. Yeah. Make it even more high stakes, more difficult. That's what you wanted to do. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. I love a challenge. And so that was my plan. And then I did the quick math on like, oh, I won't like actually be a person who is making positive money until I'm in my like late thirties or forties. And even then I'm going to be the lowest, the lowest level employee who is working all of the holidays. So doing that definitely gave me a much bigger appreciation for our, our healthcare professionals who sign up to do that. Um, but I was like, you know, maybe I want something that has a more immediate return on investment in which engineering was a really great option for 
get a four-year degree and be pretty employable right away to do something that makes makes a really competitive salary and lets you work on some things that are pretty cool. So I decided to do mechanical engineering and I was 100% certain that I was going to make autonomous vehicles. I knew that's what I was doing. If you listen to the podcast up to this point, spoiler alert, you know, that's not what I end up doing. Um, but I really wanted to work on it from that safety standpoint, making our roads safer, more efficient. Um, if you had all autonomous vehicles, you can like increase the carrying capacity of your highways by roughly two. So there's a lot of great things that come with autonomous vehicles, as well as decreasing admissions, all sorts of things. And that's um, partially too, just when it's all, when it's fully autonomous though. So you got to make sure you have a, a solid system, right? Yes. Yeah. If everything is autonomous, it's really easy because all the cars talk to each other and figure it out. When some of your cars are autonomous and a lot of them have people doing things that are not pre-planned and able to be predicted perfectly, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but again, you um, wanted to do the hard thing. So I wanted to do the hard sense. thing. Yeah, exactly. And so I... I enrolled at Purdue. I decided like, let's do out-of-state tuition. There's a bunch of great, great engineering schools in Ohio, but I just really loved the campus feel of Purdue. My mom had given me the advice of like, make a pro-con chart for all of the colleges you visit. The only con for Purdue was the price. And she was like, sometimes you just got to take a leap of faith and hope that the ground appears underneath you as far as paying for out-of-state tuition. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. I went to Purdue's career fair my freshman year. I talked to like 35 companies, something ridiculous. And the only one I heard back from was PNG. And I was like, oh, like that's where my parents work. I really want to get out of Ohio. I want to be somewhere else. I want to do something different. This isn't at all related to autonomous vehicles, but like I need to pay my tuition. So, okay. So I did an internship in our, our liquid fabric enhancers, which is downy is what the normal person on the street would call it. And I loved it. I refer to it as, as liquid fabric enhancers all the time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's on my, it's on my shopping list, in, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. So anyway, I, I ended up working in our, our Downey group as an engineer solving different, you know, we're seeing these weird pressure drops that cause the particles that impact how soft your clothes are to be variable size. And how do we make it so that they are like uniformly small to make your clothes as soft as possible. Um, doing things like that, I loved it. One, I was working on a product that my friends and family used all the time. So I'll say like, it's not as sexy as rocket science, which my, my boyfriend at the time was getting a, his degree in aerospace engineering. So it wasn't as like flashy, cool engineering as designing rockets, but it was something that people could immediately relate to. And then also the scope of what you could be responsible for, even as a, you know, 19 year old who or 18 or 19 year old who has taken one year of engineering courses, you got a lot that you owned. Part of it's that, you know, P&G sets you up for success with your mentors and there's a very rigorous interview process, but you're also making soap. So like, if you make a mistake, it's costly. It'll cost the company money but it's not the same as if you make a mistake on programming a vehicle that could kill people, right? So I got to have a lot of things that I was able to control what I tested and how I tested it and what the solutions looked like. 
and really got to bring the kind of creative side of engineering there. And to which my response was like, shoot, I really enjoyed this. Um, I ended up going on and doing a total of five internships with PNG while I was in college, as well as an off summer internship where I did work for an autonomous vehicles company and confirmed that laundry sauce was indeed what I enjoyed more than autonomous vehicles. Yeah, I, I remember you coming back from one of your, I think it was actually the, the semester that you worked uh, in autonomous vehicles, but you came back and you had your, your tied shirt and like everyone just knew, they were like, yeah, she's, she's going to work for Procter & Gamble. Like she, obviously like she, sure, she went off and did this other thing, but the amount that this girl talks about laundry sauce, like there's, mm -hmm. there's no way, but I mean. Roses are red. This message is urgent. Why do people keep calling laundry sauce detergent? That's a good poem. It's coming up Thank here. You. you know, you Thank got you. you got Valentine's Day coming up here in a couple of weeks. Might as well get those those romantic those romantic laundry sauce poems out there. That's good. Make sure you yes. guys use that if you're listening to this and it's before February 14th. Uh, maybe put that on your Valentine's. Maybe get some get some Tide Pods for, uh, for acts your of service ones. are a love language if your significant other likes acts of service you know throw in their laundry for them you don't even really have to separate your colds from your warms and your lights from your darks as much anymore because of the great work we've done to make it so that you can just dump it in the in the washing machine and and let her ride there you go and that actually brings us perfectly to our next class um one that i had not anticipated on going into but i think it's a great a great topic of uh we're gonna go into mythology class um yes. and talk oh, a little yes. bit about about, about <laughs> myths that exist in the uh i guess should we just call it like the greater fabric care maybe is is the is a wide enough net to uh, talk about is there anything yes. that you've that now, you can Kevin, teach I'm a little me. bit sad. I thought you were going to talk about my English minor in myths and legends, but oh, I can also will... talk about <laughs> the legends of laundry sauce. Just that's that's an actual spoiler because we will get to that one later. That is in my notes. But uh, yeah, as far as 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 the myths go uh, in in fabric care, and maybe maybe if you can relate it to a, a real life, you know, a, a greater a greater mythos. Uh, that would be bonus points, but that's just extra credit in this class. You don't have to necessarily do that. So do you have some uh, some myths in mind for me to bust or do you want me to throw out some common misconceptions about about the fabric care industry? I, I would think probably common misconceptions, if you have them, would be great. I know like certainly the whole separating of your laundry um, I remember at one point you you taught me something and you I guess you didn't actually teach me because I didn't I didn't learn my lesson. Uh, you mentioned you attempted to teach me something about using fabric softener and I think it was athletic clothes and like the like the mm -hmm. tech fiber was there was something there. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, what are, what are some common things that you could talk about? Yeah, so one of the things is one of the biggest ways that you as a consumer can have a positive environmental impact is washing your clothes on cold. Um, hot water is of course always associated with more clean. Yeah. The P&G as a, as a consumer products company is aware that we sell a lot of 
products in plastic and we're working to reduce that, but also the water consumption that is used in using our products is, is huge, right? And so figuring out how can you design a solution that uses less water and uses cold water so that you're not heating up the water is a huge environmental saver. Um, and so Tide Pods have been designed so that they still dissolve and work even in cold water. We've had some different ad campaigns to try to increase, we call it consumer awareness of that. Teach so if, the you're public. A, if you're a Tide Pod or Gain Fling user, um, wash your clothes on cold. We do have some specific cold water variants that are even further designed to be used in cold water. But basically, wash on cold when you can. If you think about it, your clothes that wash on warm are like sweatpants, sweatshirts, socks, things of that nature. So my normal laundry habit is like, I will separate out my whites from my darks, which isn't even really necessary. But then I just wash almost everything on cold unless I've got a ton of dirty socks. Um, but cold water is a lot more environmentally friendly. So go ahead and use that. The other big misconception is that people think that the, the film that contains the, the liquid of a Tide Pod is plastic. And so people are concerned of like, where does the plastic go when I wash my clothes? But it's not plastic. It is a water soluble film that is specifically designed so that the, the pod or the liquid of the detergent that is in contact with the film has a layer that keeps it from dissolving but the outside of the pod is designed that as soon as it gets wet, it dissolves and goes away. So like it is not a plastic film that's gonna gum up your washing machine or stick somewhere to your clothes. I don't know if we have a good like scientific term for it yet, but it's some sort of water soluble membrane as I guess what you could call it. Sure. Um, and so there's not, not some like, you know, if you think about it from like a conservation of matter standpoint, like where does it go? Like it, it washes out with the, with the dirty water. It's not getting stuck in your machine. And once it's like washed out, wherever that water goes to be treated, like it is also treated. So as far as like conservation and, you know, using more than you actually need, does more laundry sauce equal cleaner clothes or like? No, no. There is a specific amount that is the right amount. So if you don't use enough, obviously you don't get the cleaning power. You don't get the, you know, it's enzymes in the product that is what removes your stains. And then of course you've got the perfumes that give you a, a positive smell at the end. But if you use too much, you you really like oversaturate your water because your your washing machine uses a certain amount of water based on the load size. If you have too much soap in there, you're not going to be able to rinse it away as effectively. It's not going to clean as well. It may leave residues, things like that. So when you think about like your your liquid detergent from PNG, there's the cap that has the different bars. The more accurately you can assess like is this a small, medium or large load? the better cleaning performance you're gonna get. So PNG has been doing a lot of ad campaigns as well about like, how do you right size your detergent usage to get the best cleaning performance? Cause we want you to use it and be really happy with the result. So we don't want you to use three times as much and be like, wow, this left a bunch of residue. I'm gonna use a competitor. Uh, okay, 
I'm glad that I asked that because I feel like there have been times where I've been like, oh, this is a super dirty load. We're going to add some more. But, you know, maybe that wasn't the best Now, idea. we do have a new packaging element on our pods. It's called the the wobbler. If you bought a, a container of our, our Tide Pods recently in the tubs, when you take off the lid, there's this little plastic flap that you your hand pushes down as you reach in. And it's got the dosing instructions of like, for a small load, use one Tide Pod. For medium or large loads, use two Tide Pods. And for your extra large or your very heavily soiled loads, use three Tide Pods. So that's another misconception is people think that you just throw in one Tide Pod and that's sufficient. But if you're filling up your machine, especially a high efficiency machine that doesn't have that central agitator, you're probably putting a lot more clothing in than you realize. So you probably do need to use two or even three pods if you've, you know, waited two or three weeks to do laundry and you're you're packing that machine full all the way. Cool. Got any any other myths? I guess what was what's the one myth that I don't fully remember uh, about using fabric softener? So for for fabric softener, the way that it works is it it coats your clothing in these micro vesicles that make it feel soft. So for for anything that's supposed to be high absorbency or wicking, that's actually gonna mess with the fabric properties that have been engineered there. So things like towels, like bath towels that you want to absorb a lot of water, mm -hmm. you actually shouldn't use fabric softener on because it will coat the outside of that material and make it feel soft at the expense of creating a, a physical barrier that prevents the water from being absorbed by your towel as well. Same thing for like performance active wear. If it talks about being like, you know, sweat wicking or things like that. If you put that coating on it, it's going to, to interfere with that. So we have things that are called like downy active, which is specifically designed for active wear so that you still get, you know, the specific enhancements that you're looking for as far as like extra scent because workout clothes can be extra stinky um, without, you know, lessening the you know attributes of the clothing that you've paid money to have those specific attributes cool any any other myths i'm trying really hard to connect it to to a greater myth or legend but i'm falling up short here those are the those are the myths that come to mind but ones. if people if people have more questions i don't know if you've got a way for for uh, listeners to send in questions but we could always address myths of the laundry world in a in a laundry sauce part two episode that we could um you know just in case i might do this by the time we release this head over to www.kevinhasapodcast.com and click the submit a question for a past guest button or something similar it might not be worded exactly that way uh and we'll uh see what happens and I, I know i had some questions for for duncan that i've had people uh send my way so maybe we'll just formalize it on the website so be on the lookout for that. Uh, now that we've done mythology class, we've got history and mythology both done. Um, I think geography probably will be a, a fairly quick class. Um, is there any sort of, you know, right now you're in the, the, the Cincinnati area where Procter & Gamble is headquartered. Is there a particular reason that you were kind of drawn to that area of where you work? Or is there a particular reason that Procter & Gamble is in the Cincinnati area? 
Yes. So the reason Procter & Gamble is in Cincinnati is our company is, I think it's 183 years old. So, Pretty old. so Uncle Procter and Uncle Gamble have been around for quite a while. Um, the reason that it popped up in Cincinnati is actually that Cincinnati back in the day was known as Porkopolis. It was a big like meat processing center right along the Ohio River. It was easy to, to ship in pigs and then do the butchering. And of course, one of the byproducts from butchery work, I don't think that's the correct term, um, but is your like your lard and your animal fat, which is used in, in soap and candles. And so Procter and Gamble were actually two individuals who they're married, I think sisters, and the, their father-in-laws were like, hey, you make soap and you make candles. Those two things could go together. Like the two of you should, should join up and become like business gurus. Like that because would be, a, that would work out really supply well. Chain, so join together it and take, okay. It was, it was basically that like efficiency of the supply chain, which is a big focus for PNG still was like, we're in an area where we can get this product. Um, and so like candles and ivory soap were some of the first products that they had. Does Procter um, Gamble still make candles? Uh, we do, we have different like um, Febreze candles and things of that okay. nature, like okay. Febreze wax melts. So yes, that's part of our home care department, our, our air care group. So yeah, that's how Procter & Gamble came to be situated in Cincinnati. Um, our headquarters are actually right down in downtown Cincinnati, you know, pretty close to the river. So we are a global company. So we've got, uh, we call them technical centers or innovation centers, which are your kind of like normal offices all across the globe, as well as our manufacturing centers are also global. I don't think we have, we have nothing in Antarctica and I don't know that we have anything in Australia, but everywhere else you can find PNG and our brands. Sometimes the brands are known as different things like Mr. Clean over in Europe is Mr. Propra, which is French for clean. Um, so there's some different like sense. fun fun <laughs> brand changes, but that's why Cincinnati is headquartered or PNG is headquartered in Cincinnati. Um, for me personally, given the, the job that I wanted to have, my last internship was actually with our soluble unit dose, which is our fancy way of saying Tide Pods and Gain Flings group. Um, I really liked the work that I was doing there. I liked the kind of technical challenges that I was solving. So I wanted to start full-time with that group. And then my family is also, you know, being proctor people are, are always, as we call them, proctoids. Um, we're here in the Cincinnati area. So that's really what, what drew me to, to be in Cincinnati. And you too, uh, we were talking right before we hit record, uh, you had traveled to France, like right before the pandemic hit or like a month before or so. Uh, yes. What was yes. that like? What's that like kind of working oh, it was for awesome. a, a global company? Big fan it's of? It's super cool. So, cause P&G, when you travel for work, they, they pay for your airfare, they pay for your hotels, they pay for your meals. Um, and so you, you get yourself somewhere that normally would be pretty expensive on the company's dollar. And then we actually allow you to do um, business personal travel. So I flew into Paris two or three days before my business trip was scheduled to start, paid for my own hotel and food for those couple of days, but had, had the airfare, which is one of the really expensive parts taken care of for me. So got to do some, some tourist activities, went and saw the catacombs in Paris, which was really cool. And then went and visited our, our fabric care site in Amiens, France, 
and it's really cool because even though the the packages are different we have a lot of things that are standardized across the globe and so a lot of the equipment is similar and then also just the way that png people are it it kind of allows you to work really well together despite you know cultural differences and things like that and so it really leverages the diversity of our consumer base it's very well represented in our workforce um, and so it it was a lot of fun to go over and actually in person meet a lot of my colleagues that I work with on a you know daily or weekly basis in their home site and it's almost like there there is that national culture divide but then the the company culture spans that even and so you exactly you, you get that exactly. breadth of experience that's pretty cool um but actually did you, I think I just heard a class bell ring and uh, yeah, did you hear that? Yeah, it, I think it's time for a foreign language class. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, did you, you took French in high school, didn't you? I did, I took four years of French in high school. Oui, je prends quatre, quatre ans de français uh, pendant j'étais dans lycée, oui. <laughs> <laughs> I will, uh, I will take you for your word that that said that you worked or that you took couple of years of, of French in high school. Um, did that have, you know, I guess one, is that why you went to France? Because you had a little no. bit of experience or it just, it just played out that way? No, we're working on a, um, a really big project right now where we're essentially redesigning our packing floor to change where the constraint of the, of the system is. And our, our two sites that are leading that work are located in Mechelen, Belgium, and Amiens, France. And so as we look to roll that out to North America, we were going to okay. see some of the physical equipment, talk with our team that we connect with on a regular basis over there. It was just kind of a, a neat bonus that I also, I can kind of trip through French. I tell people that I'm like a toddler. I can expect, I can express basic needs and then people feel bad for me and tend to help. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, I love it. Is there, um... I guess not French, but going back to that kind of almost the, the company culture, is there good, is it like terminology that you really appreciate having in Procter & Gamble that you didn't know before you had this job or anything? So I know we've, we've talked about like, they're called packs in the more general term, or um, they're called aquarium container, aquarium containers, is that what aquarium it is? Aquarium tubs. Aquarium, aquarium tubs. tubs, yeah. Any other good any any other good lingo vocabulary terms? Oh, I mean, PNG has we have a whole acronym dictionary because it is not uncommon for you to say a sentence that is just articles and acronyms, and everybody around the table is like, "Ah, oh, yes, I understand exactly what you mean about you know the VEC's PR needs to be increased by blah 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 blah," and you're like, "Ah, that meant nothing to someone who isn't within PNG," um, but also things like learnings like learning with an s on the end is not uh -huh. a real word png people use it all the time like oh you executed this test what were your learnings um or corrugate is not a word corrugated so like cardboard is corrugated yeah yeah um we refer to all of our cases as corrugate that's not a real word that's a png word um so we have all sorts of acronyms as well as just like terms that words. come up that mm -hmm. become part of the culture and so as whenever we have interns or new hires we're always like 
do not be afraid to ask about acronyms. Like one, pull up the acronym dictionary, but sometimes you'll Google it or you'll Google it within our internal system. And there's like four different options of what the acronym could be. Uh So like raise your hand and ask, or like ask the person next to you, because we get so used to just using these acronyms all the time that we don't even remember the fact that you don't know that they're normal things that people on the street would be like, what the heck is a VEC, a value engineered converter? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was one of my favorite things uh, back in college when you would refer to courses just by their like three number, three digit course number. And like you could have entire conversations in just numbers comparing things. And it would sound like gibberish to like anyone outside of even your major, but yeah. Okay, cool. Well, then that brings us to let's see we've done history geography mythology foreign language uh time for recess and just like in episode one uh best part about recess is the memes are there any good either memes in the literal sense of like yeah this is where you go and see all the funny pictures with captions or are there any sort of like running gags or like things that come up as a joke so um I should have used this in the last episode, but one example is one time I was like driving home from work and Duncan, who is in finance, calls me w- because he needed help setting up his Wi-Fi. And like, Duncan, <laughs> my degree is in industrial engineering. It has nothing to do with your home network issues. But he's like, but it's a STEM degree, that sort of thing, where it's just like a, a running gag of people misunderstanding what you do or that sort of thing. Um, I've had people like when I did research at Purdue, one of my, my principal investigators had gotten a stain on her shirt. She's like, oh, you work in fabric care. Like, what do I do about this? How do I get this stain out? And I could like give her, gave her some tips on, on what to do. For those of you who are not experts in stain removal, um, I did this for Ryan Craker the one day when he showed up on our doorstep with his shirt all bloody because he (laughs) cut his finger at a bar and like just kept dancing yep um, but you're gonna want to as soon as they get the sooner you can do this the better your chances are of removing the stain um you're gonna want to pour liquid detergent on it and just kind of like lightly rub it into the stain basically it gives a more concentrated dose i'll call it of the enzymes to basically lift the stain out of the fabric let it sit in so that the detergent dries and then wash it on cold Um, Cold water is better for for lifting stains versus hot water is going to set the stain potentially. And then before you put it in the dryer, check and see if the stain is gone. You may need to repeat that process once more uh, because once you dry it, your stain is set. So like if you ever spill barbecue sauce or some red wine or whatnot on your your shirt, sooner you can get some detergent on it um, and then wash it in cold water and check before you dry is recipe for success. Uh, I would say the, well, I'm surprised you didn't bring this up. The biggest meme that we face is the the Tide Pod challenge. Which Um, I did not bring up because I know that it infuriates you, so. Yes, yes, it's it's definitely a sore subject. We have multiple different initiatives. Initiatives are like new products that we're launching or new packages that we're launching um, that were named things that were food related. And we had to re- legally, we had to rename all of them because we could not have projects 
that were associated with food names while there were people eating Tide Pods. Um, but when, when the product first launched back in, I want to say like 2011 or 2012, the tubs used to be um, transparent. So you could see in and see the pods. And it was a really great, we call it like first moment of truth on shelf. Like when you see the product, you're like, wow, that looks awesome. But it looked too much like a dish of like candy. <laughs> and it was too tempting for children so that we had to switch to an opaque tub, which is what you see now with our like flagmar, flagship orange or green tide yep. and gain tubs. And we also had to switch to, we call it echo, easy close, hard open packaging. So all of our packages are child resistant. Sometimes it also makes them grandma resistant. So we, there's a very fine line to walk between like your elderly grandmother with arthritis needs to be able to open this tub, but your five-year-old who might put it in their mouth can't. So the fact that like PNG had spent millions and millions of dollars re-platforming to make our products safer only to have teenagers then messing around and eating Tide Pods when it's like, it says on the package, do not ingest, don't put them in your eyes. This is a bad idea. I'm glad that the like challenges that the youths do today are all TikTok dances, not eating literal chemicals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that warning on the packaging to, to bring it to a different meme, you know, that, that can't stop me. I can't read. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I'm trying to think of what other things, what other memes we have. I don't know. All right. Well, if you come to any, you know, bring, we can bring the, we can obviously bring the conversation back to the memes for sure. But that leads us to our, our bonus class for today, uh, which is based off of a class that both you and I took during our times at Purdue. And that is pirates with an exclamation point on the end. Um, yes. Obviously, Pirates was a, a wonderful class focusing on the historical and literary pirates of the 18th century that we uh, that we took, and eventually, I would say it was a, a direct path to you getting your your minor, your your English minor there. Um, yes. But is there anything from either from the Pirates class, or we'll, we'll open it up to the the kind of the mythological literature um, that has informed how you act uh, as, as a person who puts soap in a box, you know, is it, is it you, are you storing booty? Is that kind of something you've learned uh, <laughs> that all that wealth that goes into the box, uh, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have any direct parallels to say like, because I took pirates exclamation mark or dragons that it it has directly impacted the way that I put soap in a box but I will say one of my biggest takeaways was like being a less shitty person um stem a lot of times is very very focused on like black and white and this is the data and so it is correct and glosses over like the way that you got the data really matters. The way that you ask the questions really matters. Like a lot of other context is really important to the way that you, you do this work. Um, and one of the big things that I learned taking the pirates class was like, there's a lot of data behind people who read novels are more empathetic and it exposes you. Cause basically it's a way to like sit in another person's shoes for, you know, a couple hundred pages, experience a life very different from your own, 
and therefore take those learnings into consideration as you move forward. And so just by, it got me reading more. I was an avid reader when I was in grade school. Um, it started to drop off in high school. By the time I was at Purdue doing engineering, like my vocabulary tanked because I just wasn't, I was reading textbooks. I wasn't reading fun books, but I do think it made me a much more empathetic person aware to the struggles of others. You know, I come from a very privileged background growing up in a pretty wealthy suburban area. My parents having, you know, both of them are highly educated, provided a lot of opportunities for me. As I then work on a product that people of very diverse backgrounds use, it helps remind me to, you know, like, okay, but think about all of the people that are impacted by this. Think of all of the consumers that use this product and what their diverse needs might be. And so it just kind of recalls the like, not every consumer is a white young professional from the Midwest. Um, there's a lot of different needs that you need to design for. Um, and a lot of different reasons that people in the meeting might be voicing different, different perspectives. So that's probably one of the, the more direct things to my job. The other is just that like, it's really cool. When I had interviews with, with other companies before I accepted my job with PNG, as well as just when I like have join-ups with leadership, that's another PNG word, join-ups. It's your like one-on-one <laughs> -on -one meeting, which we call a one-to-one, -one, that's something else. Um, <laughs> meeting with someone else for the first time, we have these bio slides where you talk about like, who's Katie Polson in a nutshell? You know, I went to Purdue, mechanical engineer, this is my family. This is my kind of career history with, you know, with PNG and outside of PNG. Here's some of my core technical competencies, but like also what's important to me outside of work. When I list that some of my interests are, you know, blacksmithing and the golden age of piracy, people never ask me about like, oh yeah, tell me more about the research that you did at Purdue. They always want to like, what? What do you know about pirates? And it's just a, a fun conversation starter. Um, I think it's important to remember that everybody is a multi-dimensional person. So even though a lot of what unites my coworkers and I are putting soap in a box or putting soap in a pod or getting the raw materials to the pod, um, we all have different things that make us unique and that we care about outside of work. And it makes it a lot more fun to work with people who tell you about the pizza oven that they built over the weekend because they really enjoy cooking. And then you can talk about the myths of piracy and how walking the plank wasn't really a pirate punishment that was used to commit insurance fraud and things of that nature that are just not part of the job, but part of what makes it a fun place to work. Wow. And I think honestly, that is a, a great place. I'm glad that we, we got there, but I think that's a great place to wrap up our conversation. Um, I think we're probably going to be recording a bonus episode or two here. Uh, so, you know, obviously don't hang up on the Zoom call, Katie, but uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for, for uh, offering to, to be on the podcast today. I feel like I learned a lot uh, about what you do and kind of how you got there. So thanks, Katie. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Hopefully, uh, just like my tours when I was in PSAF, I strive for these to be fun and informative. So hopefully the listeners learned a bit about laundry sauce and how it ends up on the in the packages that you buy and had some fun along the way. Absolutely. Awesome.
Hey everyone, thanks for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to be a guest on a future show, or if you have a question for a previous guest, head on over to www.kevinhasapodcast.com and fill out the forms there. Thanks.